Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Radio Bosses, it's episode 77 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. Today we have another friend joining us for a guest interview, conversation. Still not sure what we call these. One of them. <laughs> Today we've got Todd Churches. We've been chatting for a few months, we connected on LinkedIn, and it turns out he's kind of just an interesting dude. And when we were chatting, there's just a lot of stuff that we were talking about that we were just so much on the same page with when it came to presentations, communication, and visuals as well. And you were telling me about these conversations, and I was like, stop having these conversations in secret, let's get him on the podcast (laughs) and hear him talk. So we did, we did. He's just actually released a book, which I found most interesting, uh, which we talk about in the show. uh, And it's about how to have visual communication, uh, but without sort of visuals, as we talk about, like without the PowerPoint slides and that sort of thing. Mm. So so the four tools that we can use to make our presentations more visual using language devices. I really enjoyed this chat. It was the first time I'd met Todd. Oh, yeah. And like you said, as you promised, he's just a really interesting person. And a lot of the conversation I found was things that like you kind of knew subconsciously, but he brings it into the conscious. So for me, there were a lot of moments of, oh, yeah, Yeah. which was a bit of fun. Yeah. Plus, he's given a TEDx talk. So we talked about that process a little bit in the conversation, uh, which we recorded again at a silly hour because the time difference between New York and Australia. But why don't we hear a little bit more about Todd Church's Kate and then we'll play the conversation. Alrighty. Todd Churches is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based consulting firm specializing in leadership development, public speaking, and executive coaching. He's also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU and a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University. Todd is also a TEDx speaker and the author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life, published this year. So welcome, Todd Churches, to the Presentation Boss podcast. Okay, thank you so much. Great being here with you and Thomas. So Todd, we've heard your official bio. Can you tell us who is Todd Churches now that you're, um, I guess, at home and at work all together? Yeah, I'm coming to you from New York. We've been in pandemic mode since, uh, since March. I actually am coming to you right now from Fairfield, Connecticut, because we fled New York City back in March. And we've been back a couple of times to our apartment. But um, basically, we're in the suburbs. So uh, I have a much bigger office out here, which is much nicer. It's the house my wife grew up in. So we were lucky to have this house and be able to have a refuge. And, but this is the room where I wrote my book. And this is the room where I do all my Zoom calls. And it's great that we have this because my wife and I have his and hers uh, desks in, in New York. And if we had to go through the pandemic 24 hours a day, elbow to elbow, I think we would have killed each other by now. So luckily, we have a lot. <laughs> we have extra space and breathing room. And um, uh, I consider myself very fortunate to have, uh, have this situation. But it's been tough times. I mean, in New York and all yeah, over the world, um, we've all had to adjust to working from home and living on Zoom and social media. So you've got university classes as well that you've had to take online, hey? Yeah, I teach, uh, I teach leadership at NYU and Columbia. So at NYU, I teach leadership for uh, in the HR master's program, human resources master's program. And um, it's a 14 session course, so 14 three-hour sessions. And at Columbia, I teach leadership in a few different programs. One of them, leadership for Broadway stage managers in the MFA theater program. So I get to be a little more creative. I, get to, I, was a, I, I majored in English literature with a background in Shakespeare and poetry, and I love 
theater. So I get to incorporate a lot more creativity and innovation and show tunes and Shakespearean quotes into the Columbia class. But they're each great. I love them both in different ways. Yeah, right. So uh, we've, we've spoken previously a little bit, Todd, about your vast and almost meandering experience, like mm. as a lecturer, you're a business owner. I'm interested, tell us um, about your work now, the, the few facets of it. And also, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, one of the things we talk about in the human resources program at NYU is like people's career paths, right? And one of the metaphors I use, and we'll talk a lot about metaphors, is it's not a path, or at least it's not in my life. It's a roller coaster right? A path implies a stroll in the park with stepping stones laid out and walking amongst the trees and flowers. Uh, my career has been a roller coaster of ups and downs, twists and turns, exhilarating highs and terrifying plummets. So uh, I started out my career, basically in my TEDx talk, I mentioned how as a kid, my career dream was to be Superman and my backup plan was to be Batman. So those were my career aspirations. But if I couldn't be either Superman or Batman, I wanted to work in TV in some capacity. I knew I loved television. I grew up obsessed with television. And I always thought I would be always behind the scenes. I was always, even though I talk loud and fast, I am an extreme introvert. I always say I'm a three B's kind of guy, a bookworm, behind the scenes and back of the room guy. So for me to be out front and presenting and teaching and doing TEDx talks that is so outside my comfort zone or anything I ever would have imagined 15 years ago that I, I don't even believe it sometimes. You know, you heard the term imposter syndrome. Sometimes I'm like, I'm standing up there. I'm like, what am I doing up here? Like, am I hallucinating? Am I imagining, imagining this? Um, so my dream was to work in TV. So I actually got a degree in English literature with a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. And I got my master's degree in communication. And then I worked in New York in advertising for a year for Ogilvy and Mather Advertising. I wanted to work in the creative side, either as an account exec or on, but I ended up getting a job in the media department. So you would have loved it, Kate. It's all about Excel spreadsheets. Although Excel <laughs> didn't exist at that time, but it was spreadsheets, calculating ratings and shares and, and costs for TV commercials. And I learned a lot and it was great to be at a Ogilvy and Mather, one of the great ad agencies in the world. And I actually once got into an elevator and David Ogilvy stepped in and I almost fainted. You talk about not having your elevator pitch ready. I didn't even know what an elevator pitch was. And I almost passed out because here's this legend and it's the two of us in this elevator together. He didn't say anything to me. I didn't say anything to him, but uh, I'll never, I almost, <laughs> I froze there. But I worked for a year in advertising in New York City, which is where I grew up. And then I decided, or I realized um, that if I wanted to work in the creative side of television, I had to move out to Hollywood. I needed to be on the West Coast. So I packed my bags and my cape and I flew out to <laughs> Hollywood and I had no connections and no money and no leads, except I had two college roommates who lived out there. We got an apartment together and I got a series of temp jobs and assistant jobs that helped to get my foot in the door. And I even, I hate to admit it, but I even had to get a night job to supplement my income. And I was a bouncer in a nightclub. So here I was, I was I'm six foot four. I know you're, you're tall, right? Right, uh, Right, Thomas? I think you're like 6'6", six, six, right? Yeah, Did I have I to flex you. Yeah, I'm two inches taller. Probably. All right. So you're too old, too, so I'll give you, I usually don't associate with people who are taller than me, but uh, you seem like a nice guy. And we're both sitting. We're on all Zoom, sitting yep. On Zoom, everyone's the same height. So that's it's the great equalizer. So anyway, I, I took it, even though I was stick figure thin and I was tall and you put someone in a suit and give them a clipboard and put them behind the velvet rope and say, check IDs and throw out the drunk people. Um, that was my job for three years until I got punched in the face one night 
and then my glasses broke into pieces. And I'm like, this isn't worth the $10 an hour that I'm getting. So, um, but it was a great experience. I actually wrote a sitcom script called Dr. Bouncer, PhD, about a guy who taught during the day, but worked as a bouncer at night. And who knew that th 20 years later, that would be my life, not as a bouncer, but that I would be teaching at a university. So um, anyway, I, so I worked a series of jobs in the TV industry. I worked for Aaron Spelling Productions on Dynasty. I worked at Disney in comedy development. I worked in CBS, uh, hmm. at CBS in drama program development. And then after I hit a brick wall in my career, and I left television for a variety of reasons, including psychotic bosses, um, I took a job as a theme park project manager. And I did that for a few years before moving back to New York, getting into management and leadership development, which is what I've done ever since. So that's, in a nutshell, which is a metaphor, that is my career journey that led me from college to Hollywood and back to New York, where I'm teaching at NYU and Columbia, and I have my own company called Big Blue Gumball, um, and our motto is we make training entertaining, because we incorporate the entertainment side of my background into the training side, and that's what I do. I love that. I love when I hear someone who hasn't just had that completely linear career path, like they knew what they wanted to do since they were eight and they just have done that ever since. I love when yeah. people have just such diverse stuff in their background. Yeah, I love yeah. origin stories, whether it's Spider-Man or Superman or people's careers. I always love hearing, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Like those stories are always fascinating to me. Because like you said, unless you go into law or medicine or something, very few of us end up having really linear career paths. And it's always, um, it's like Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. You come to a fork in the road and you choose one and that takes you down another road. And you think, oh, someday I'll go back into television or someday I'll do that again. But life just takes you down another path and you just never know where it's gonna lead, which makes it fun and exciting too. One of my key, key metaphors is that of the leadership journey. We're all on this journey together, but we're each also on our own individual journey. Yeah. Uh, so, Todd, I can, we've talked about the book that you've just written, and I can see it in the background. Big part of even your TED Talk as well was this visual leadership. Can you just talk us through, let's get started on what is visual leadership? Sure. Visual leadership, and I spell it as one word with one shared capital L, so it's a single word joined together, with the basic premise being that as a leader, who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the, the lens through which you see the world. Right? So your upbringing, your culture, your background, your life experiences all shape how you view the world, how you view yourself, and that influences your values it influence, and your values influence your behaviors and your actions. Right? So it's all rooted in your paradigm. It's all rooted in how you think and how you see things. So on the cover of my book is a rainbow colored eye. It's an eye that no one has. So at one point I was going to use a blue eye so it would be consistent with my, thematically with my company, Big Blue Gumball. I actually posted on LinkedIn the two book covers, one with a rainbow eye, one with the blue eye, and I really got bashed and attacked. Even though I knew I was going to use the rainbow eye, I was just trying to create some buzz, but I got attacked for being not socially conscious and thinking in terms uh. of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Uh, I was considered, um, it was biased to just have a blue eye. And I said, I don't even have blue eyes. I have hazel brown eyes. So, but you know, a lot of things are very sensitive right now. Um, I realized that more than ever, that rainbow eye represented not only diversity, inclusion, and belonging, but also innovation and creativity. And the fact that life is filled with color and we need to see things from different perspectives. So one of the concepts I've been talking more about is the concept of flipping the eye. And I just wrote a post the other day, an article called Flipping the Eye. And it was about the importance of flipping the eye around, which is most of the time when we talk about leadership, we talk about you and your vision as a leader. Flipping the eye is about turning that eye around and looking internally at yourself and reassessing your assumptions, your biases, and basically who you are and what you believe. Secondly, it's about can you look at the world through the lens of other people who are different from you? 
with empathy, with compassion, with sensitivity, can you see what they see? Can you feel what they're feeling? And as a leader, you'll be more empathetic and you'll make better decisions if, if you don't see everything just through your lens, but through the lens of all types, all, your stakeholders all around you. So um, those are some of the key concepts of visual leadership. And the whole idea behind it is that uh, everything we do, if you think about it in communication, it's how do I get people to see what I'm saying? Whether it's a TED talk, whether it is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, whether you're teaching, whether you're talking to a client, how do I get an idea from my head into someone else's head so that the other person says, yes, I see what you're saying. So that's my mantra. That's my catchphrase. And that's the foundation of all the work I do around visual leadership. I love that. Thomas has said that before that's, as yeah. well, about an idea from your head into the head of someone else. I, I really love that. Um, that's not quite a metaphor, but that, yeah. that phrase. <laughs> I, I'd call uh, yeah. it a definition. But, yeah, yeah, definition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell us, Todd, about the, I know there's like the four pillars in that book. Can you talk us through that real quick? Sure. Um, when I talk about visual thinking and getting an idea from your head into someone else's, there's not just one way of doing it. There's a variety of ways. And one of the ways I, I talk about it is I break it down to four categories. So the four categories, categories are, number one is using visual imagery and drawing. So when you use pictures, when you use PowerPoint slides, when you use an image from a magazine, if you... Um, if you get up at a flip chart or a whiteboard or, or do a napkin sketch, you're communicating visually by getting someone to see what you're saying physically through their eye, through their actual eye, where they look at something and say, you know, they hold it up to you. Or it could be a product. It could be something you demonstrate. But, but the bottom line is you're communicating um, through either an image of some kind or, or drawing. Secondly is mental models and frameworks. So that could be a map. A, an organizational chart, a process diagram, anything that you visibly see that you, you create a framework where you put things into boxes so that you could see it more clearly. My first TEDx talk was called The Power of Visual Thinking, which is a lot of what we're talking about today. My second TEDx talk, which was supposed to be in May, had to be canceled because of the pandemic until next May. It's, a, it's called The Magic of Mental Models. So it's all about using models and frameworks. And the subtitle is Thinking Inside the Box. We all know the cliche and the phrase, thinking outside the box. Box, but you can't think outside the box until you have something in the box, right? So one of the concepts here is that life is messy and complex. If you could take away the simplify the complexity by putting things into categories, then you, you see it more clearly and then you can see solutions and then you could communicate that to other people. And one of the metaphors to explain that, and I literally just came up with this yesterday, is that picture a, draw, a silverware draw. If you open up the drawer and it was filled with knives and spoons and forks of all different shapes and sizes, and you had to put together a complete set of say four matching sets, it would take you a while. But if you opened it up and you had compartments with forks in one compartment, knives in one, spoons of different sizes in the others, if you needed to pick out one of each to put out four settings, which ones will you do faster, right? So the first drawer represents the messiness and complexity. The second drawer represents compartmentalization and using a framework in which to put ideas or objects so you could see them more clearly and achieve your objective. So that metaphor I literally hit me yesterday um, because we have a drawer like that in our kitchen that we need to clean up a little bit. But I think, does that, I think that clarifies a little bit why the power of putting things into boxes, not putting people into boxes. I just want to caution people. We're not labeling people as saying, you're this, you're that, um, because people are much more nuanced than that. But with ideas, if you could put something into a box, like SWOT analysis, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like situational leadership, time management matrix with the four quadrants, right? If I say to someone who's read the book, like seven habits, oh, I need to spend all day Friday in quadrant two, 
you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That's the important but not urgent quadrant. So it creates a shorthand and a language by which to get an idea out of your head and into someone else's. Those are the first two, imagery and models. Third is use of metaphor and analogy, which I've alluded to a couple of times, <laughs> explaining one thing using something else. And that's the foundation of poetry, song lyrics. And if you look at most blog titles, most blog titles and many book titles have a metaphor in the title. Right. So like who moved my cheese has nothing to do with dairy products. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, so many book, pro, you know, there's a classic Harvard article called um, who's got the monkey. Again, we're not looking for a missing primate. It's who has the next responsibility. Right. So we use this all the time. The tip of the iceberg that that came out of left field. One of the things about metaphors is that a metaphor can make the invisible visible, simplify complexity, um, make the abstract concrete, but the metaphor you choose to use has to be considered in light of who your audience is. I love baseball, I'm a big Yankees fan, Mets fan, but if I'm talking to someone from Australia, someone from India, you, you, you may not be as familiar with baseball, so I might use a cricket analogy, a rugby analogy, a tennis analogy, something more universal, nature crosses all lines, right? So if I say I need to plant the seed for an idea, see, go out on a limb here with this um, projection and let's see what bears fruit. I just use three nature or tree related metaphors and you got it because it doesn't matter what type of tree you, you're familiar with, we all know what a tree looks like, right? So that's the power of metaphors. So if you use a good metaphor, it'll achieve that clarity. A bad metaphor does the exact opposite and backfires on you because it actually causes more confusion if people don't know what you're talking about. So that's one of the key things about metaphors. So, and again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Sorry, I had to say that. that was, uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. That's good. Do uh, you see what I did there? And the fourth category is storytelling and humor. And I try to incorporate humor uh, into what I do. And the thing about humor, just to touch on that one first, we're not talking about jokes. It's not two people walked into a bar. I see a lot of people open up presentations with a joke. It's like, I need some humor here. And it's either inappropriate or irrelevant, right? Yeah. It's got to be tied in. So if I say to you, let me tell you about the worst boss I ever had, and I tell you a story, if it's related to management leadership, then it's relevant, right? So storytelling is human, it's emotional. Stories have a beginning, middle, and end. That goes back to Aristotle, right? Stories have victims, villains, and heroes. Um, so storytelling is universal, and that's how culture is passed down. Grandparents tell their children stories, children tell their friends stories. So storytelling is universal. So um, those are, you know, basically, those are my four categories. I like that. Can I ask a question on metaphors? Sure. Do you think it's better to use original metaphors or well-known ones? Like tip of the iceberg, we know really, really well. I would say it's almost cliche, but it's still mm -hmm. used because it works really well. But then, uh, you know, we like novelty, we like newness. So I would sometimes like to come up with my own metaphors, but then mm -hmm. can that take more cognitive processing for people and therefore not be as effective to use? Yeah, there's a quote in my book, and I don't have it open right now, but I can look it up. A quote by Aristotle basically saying, the ability to effectively use original metaphors is a sign of genius. Because like you're talking about, okay. Kate, it takes creativity, innovation, and you have to come up. Sometimes it will come up spur of the moment or impromptu, you know, right then and there. And other times you sit and say, all right, what's a good metaphor I could use here that will explain this idea? So like one of my clients, they were training their sales team and different people were using different metaphors to explain what their products and services were. And we had a meeting where everyone had to get up at flip charts and draw their ideas out and present. And from that, we came up with three metaphors that were universally approved. Anyone could tell their own story as long as it was relevant and consistent with the message, but in terms of the metaphors, because one person said, it's like our competitor is the whale and we're like a guppy, 
And they said, no, we're not the guppy. We're like maybe a dolphin or maybe we're a shark, you know, mm -hmm. but we had a whole discussion about fish, you know, for like an hour and we all went out <laughs> for seafood afterwards. Um, but uh, like right, right there until we, the use of metaphor, you know, are you a whale? Are you a shark or are you a dolphin? Each one has its own associations. And through doing that, we got greater clarity in terms of their messaging. So we're talking about sea animals and yet, what we were getting at was what's the message we're trying to convey and what's the best analogy that will convey it. So great question. It really is, it, you know, the answer is it depends. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes a familiar uh, metaphor, it works best because it is familiar and people get it immediately. And other times, like you said, if something's a cliche and it's so overused, then it's like it gets groans and it backfires on you. So that's why I'd say be aware, be strategic and be intentional in any communication, but especially when using metaphors or stories, is it appropriate to my audience? Does it get my message across? Yeah. So then I guess the way to determine that is simply to run it by people and check, like, does this metaphor work? Like this original one that I've come up with doesn't mm -hmm. actually work. Yeah. And sometimes when you bounce it off someone else, they'll help you fine tune it and they'll say, yes, it yeah. works, but it may not work with this audience. Yes, it works. But what if we, what about this instead? So you may say, you know, it's not fish. We're not, you know, let's, let's use another animal or let's use something else. If you like, if you're meeting with a client, if you use a metaphor that's relevant to their business, then they say, oh, they get you. And one of the examples I use in my HR class, let's say you're meeting with a doctor a doctor's office and you're trying to sell your, your services to them. If you come in and say, we will help to diagnose the root cause of your office's problems and help you find a cure for your biggest technology challenges and we'll prescribe a solution that will fit your budget. Right there, I use diagnose, cure, and prescribe. I use three words that doctors, that's the language they speak. And they'll say, oh, you totally get what I'm talking about because you spoke their language. And one of the things I coach people about, my students in my HR master's program is if you're in HR, but you're talking to someone in IT or marketing or finance, or they speak a completely different language. You, we have our own jargon. We have our own acronyms. How can we translate that into marketing speak, into IT speak, into their language so they get what we're saying? Yep. It's certainly important, isn't it, to speak the language of the audience, to speak their discourse and communication with them in mind. Let's, let's go for a pretty basic question here, which is why is it so important to be visual in your communication? Well, without getting into all the brain science, because there are people who are much more skilled at that than I am, but the brain science research shows that we are wired for stories, we are wired for visuals. So if, like, if you were back in caveman days and a you know, saber-toothed tiger jumped out at you, you, know, you would maybe hear the rustling auditory, but you, if you see something rustling in the bushes, that's, it triggers the amygdala, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Seth Godin calls it the lizard brain, right? Because it's mm -hmm. so primordial, it's so uh, ingrained in who we are as living beings that it's all about the survival instinct, right? So visually, we pick up on cues. There's two principles that I just want to just touch on them. One is called the picture superiority effect. Research has shown that if you have pictures versus text, pictures will win every time. It's just the way our eyes are drawn. And I use one example where I show um, the syllabus, uh, the list of books for my NYU class on a, in a text-based list. And then I show the book jacket covers and you see everyone's eyes shift to this side, almost like a magnet. Yeah, right. Your eyes are just drawn to the color and the visual. Um, so that's the picture superiority effect. And the other one is called dual coding theory, D-U-A-L, as in two. Left brain, right brain, metaphorically, science has shown that our brains are not split that uh, neatly. 
but left brain is, I was, remember, left brain logical, right brain rhythm. So left brain is the logical side. That's where the text and the, and, the, and the facts and figures fit. The right side is the creative side of the brain. If you can encode something both using both text and pictures, words and images, you're going to hit your target better than if you just use one or the other. So those are two of the scientific principles that, I, that really back up the, and provide the data for why visuals are so impactful. And I sum it up in three words. And I talk about this in my TED talk, attention, comprehension, and retention. When you use a visual image or visual language, it captures people's attention and gets them to focus. When you use visual language or pictures, it gets people to understand comprehension and retention. It helps them to remember. So in terms of memory and recall, if you use visual language or visual images, they will look at it, they will understand it, and they will remember it better than words alone. So if I told you how to get from JFK Airport in New York to my, house, my apartment on the Upper East Side, and I just explained it to you in words, odds are, if you didn't write it down, you were not going to remember. But if I sent you a map, you're going to find it. Right? So right there, that's the power of a visual. And sometimes you can even look at the map and throw it away, but you have that picture embedded in your mind's eye, which is a, a term coined by Shakespeare in Hamlet when he didn't know if the apparition of his father was a real ghost or if it was a figment of his imagination. Horatio said, I think I see my father and I see him in my mind's eye. So just that phrase, to see something in your mind's eye, is a great metaphor that represents visual thinking. Mm, it's all very intertwined, isn't it? Yes, it's all interconnected. I'm the PowerPoint guy. I also talk about this same thing in, in many ways, is this idea that maybe you know the numbers, I can never remember them, depending on which study or website you read. You know, we remember like 30% of what we hear, or we remember like 80% of things that we see, right? And that's why I always think it's important to have powerful slides behind you. And, and I've got, got the list here of the four, four pillars you talked about there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And think about the best presenters. Think about Steve Jobs and his presentations. He didn't have bullet points and, you know, he had an image, maybe two or three words of text at the most. Uh, Seth Godin, great presenter. So again, the best way, you know, watch TED Talks, watch as many presentations as you can. Um, one of the things I do at NYU, in addition to teaching my class, is I, I do faculty observation, assessment, and coaching. So I sit in on other professors, and some of them are still just doing the death by bullet point thing. They're just putting up, you know, 10 bullet point slides and reading them line by line, and it's so torturous. And one of the things my brother and I say is that PowerPoint is not, was not invented to be a torture device, and yet many people use it as such. It's like, I, when I say to someone, would you have wanted to sit through that presentation? like no and it's like well why are you torturing everyone else it's like why it's laziness in a way it's it's really just using it as a teleprompter or your notes i, I forget who called it i think gar reynolds may have called it a slide you meant right yes. where you put you know create a slide that's basically a document and you just put it up on the screen it's not doing your audience any favors to do that it really is you know it takes a little more effort and skill but um it's well worth it in terms of impact and respect for your audience to not just put words up there and read to them as if they were children, but even children wouldn't like that. So that's even denigrating to children to say that, right? Children want images as much as uh, adults do. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, but isn't that why children's books have lots of pictures in them? Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my next book, my uh, visual leadership, my, my next book may be a pop-up book. I'm, I'm thinking about how can I make that work? I think that would, there, I, I don't know one business pop-up book that's out there. So uh, I think that oh, yeah. might get so what's, what's the overlap here? We're talking, it, it, we're talking a lot about communicating you know, the idea of taking an idea in your head and wirelessly putting it in somebody else's head. What, why then is the, the theme here visual leadership? What's the overlap between leadership and communication as you see it? 
Well, basically, um, one of my favorite people is, uh, is Nancy Duarte. We talked about that. Nancy Duarte to me, you know, and Gar Reynolds are the king and queen or queen and king of, of uh, visual communication and presentation. They're two of the people oh, yes. who most impacted me. Nancy Duarte's book, Slideology, and Gar Reynolds' presentation, Zen, the two of them together just changed the way I saw everything, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they modeled a lot of what I did in the early days. Uh, it was so eye-opening metaphorically speaking, um, to read this and say, yeah, this is what's wrong with most presentations. Most people are not doing this. And it's two reasons. One, they either didn't know better or two, they don't know how because it takes skill to do that. And that's why you go to a Nolan Hames or someone like that to say, hey, can you fix up my slides and make this pretty, right? Mm. Um, the key is as a leader, how do you get an idea out of your head into your followers' heads if they can't see it? And the way to get them to see it is visually. You need to create a, a vision, right? When I ask students and, and clients, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word leadership? And I do this in my TED talk. The first word is usually vision. So what does it mean to have a leadership vision or to be a visionary leader like an Elon Musk, like a Richard Branson, like a Steve Jobs, right? It's about having an idea, picturing a future that is different from and better than the current reality. That's only part one is formulating that vision. Part two is communicating that vision in a clear and compelling way so that other people get it and they're motivated and inspired by it. So for example, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, you know, he said, I have a dream, right? A dream is a vision. He didn't say I have a business plan. He didn't say I have an Excel spreadsheet, right? Okay. He basically said, <laughs> I have a picture of an idealized future state with my, where my children can live judged by the, not by the color of this, their skin, but by the content of their character, he painted a picture of a future that he would like to live in, right? And he did not use slides, he did, not use, he did nothing but use visual language, alliteration, rhyme, rhythm, references. Martin Luther King Day is celebrated in January, um, mid-January here in the US, and every year I make it a habit of reading, watching, and listening to his presentation. I do it three times. I read it, I watch it with the sound on, and then I just listen to it. And every time, it not, not only inspires me by its message, but I learn something new from it. In fact, one of my blog posts was my breakdown of all the different metaphors he uses. He loses like 30 different metaphors just within that one speech, and I break them down, both in terms of a map and in terms of a list. If you want to see what a good presentation sounds like and looks like, that's, I, that's a good place to start. And surely there's a reason it's lasted all these years as yeah. an example. One of the greats, yeah. yeah. And I think you've really touched on, like, people say leaders have a vision. They don't have an idea. They don't have a plan. They have a vision. Mm -hmm. Even that we use the word visual in our everyday language because that just is so innate and so natural to us. So that makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. One of the things we talk about in my class is the distinctions between being a manager and being a leader. They're two sides of a coin. It's not like, all right, you're a manager, you're a leader. We all need to manage and lead, even if we're just managing and leading our own lives. But mm -hmm. the, leadership, the leadership side of our brain is the part that comes up with the vision and the idea. The management side of the brain is the part that executes that idea, right? Mm -hmm. But you need both. Leadership without execution is just an idea. Execution without leadership and vision is just a task or a list of to-dos, right? It's when you combine the two that, that someone's a good manager and a good leader, or that's why you have it's like a CEO and COO, right? In the company, the CEO is supposed to tends to be the visionary. The COO is the operations person, which is what the O stands for, which is about executing that vision, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. combined, you, because it's very rare that you have, like on a scale of one to 10, that someone's a 10 in both of those areas. So I always say to people, which one are you are stronger at? Which one do you gravitate towards? And whichever one you're, you're lacking in, that's where it's good to partner up with someone else to balance each other out. So you're covering both, you know, the yin and yang or the right brain, left brain or the management leadership side of the coin. 
Yeah. Which is a metaphor. Okay. <laughs> once you start, what's interesting is once you start talking about metaphors and you start, you start noticing them. And once you start noticing them, you start using them and it really is habit forming. And I think if for the listeners, just listen for metaphors and you're going to start plucking them out of the air when you start realizing how often we use metaphor in everyday speech. It's just, mm. you don't even realize it until you become consciously aware of it. I'm going to be doing that all day now, just yeah. <laughs> the conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah I, that's your assignment. I, I'd like you to send me a list of all of the metaphors you've heard today by the end of the day. There, there you go, bosses. There's your homework. Next uh, speech breakdown. We're going to include metaphors. All right. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah, I love it. And speaking of that, I love your Sir Ken Robinson one. I, mean, I love all your speech breakdowns. That's one of my favorite things that you guys do. But you know, oh, Sir you. Ken Robinson, I've watched that probably 20 times. And you guys provided some really great insights, you know, in breaking it down. So thank you. For Excellent. Doing thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Because that's right. We had a, we had a quick, I want to say like, <laughs> it wasn't quite an argument or a contest, but I posted it on LinkedIn. We did the Ken Robinson breakdown and you commented saying, oh, I've watched that about 20. And I'd mentioned I'd watched it about 50 and yeah. well, clearly I win. And then Kate jumped in and laughed at us. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so let's head into the TED talk then. Todd, you've said that you've done a TED talk and I'm really always interested to hear about people's experiences because we see so many of them online. Obviously we have a look at a lot of them for our breakdowns. Can you tell us about your experience, how that came about, how you prepared for that? You know, the, the whole, give us tell the us whole everything. Thing. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I can write, I can write a whole book just on that process. I actually wrote a blog post that's on, on LinkedIn on how I got my TED talk. So I have a number of resources. And so first of all, watch as many as you can, like just good ones, bad mm-hmm. ones, just get that experience. Number two is you need to really, it's the application process it took me a while to really fine tune it, right? How do you capture your idea worth spreading in a way that matters to everyone? So coming up with the the right title, something that hasn't been done before. Also, I applied, I I applied and and didn't make it four times before I finally got mine. So don't expect to, you know, you're lucky if you apply once and you get it, right? Each time I refine my idea, each time I refine my application with the feedback from the organizer. If you can, even if you get rejected and you can't always do that, try to get feedback on what was good or not about it. Um, So Mm -hmm. at least it'll help you fine tune it. But number four, the, the fourth one where I was rejected, I was one of 11 finalists. And then they said, oh, we only have time for 10. So I was like, uh, oh, right. Oh, no. But here's what I here's what I did. Instead of just being rejected and angry, I actually went to the TEDx event yeah. and I actually sponsored it. So my company was one of the sponsors. So I got some visibility. I met the organizer. I got to stand up on the stage on that red carpet and look out before the show started. And it was great. Just to talk about visual visualization. It's one thing to sit in the audience and, or first of all, watch it on video. Secondly, to sit in the audience. But thirdly, to stand on that stage, buy yourself, go to a home goods store and buy yourself a red bath mat and practice that in your home, right? That becomes part, you know, we talk about comfort zone. That red bath mat will become, which will represent the red carpet on the TED stage, will make you feel more comfortable when you eventually get up there because then you could visualize yourself on the stage. So that's one of the things. Like, but if you go to see right. other people's deliver their TEDx talks in person, it eliminates a lot of the fear. Because when you watch it, it's so intimidating. Like here I've been presenting all these years. And as soon as I got the TED Talk, we all elevate TED Talks, put them on a pedestal because it's such an achievement, which it is. But it really is just another speech. It's another presentation. It has to fit a certain format. It has to meet certain criteria, which is great. But I think we magnify it and we put so much stress on ourselves thinking it has to be perfect. And as I'll tell in a second, my experience ended up being far from perfect and yet still one of the great experiences and and professional experiences of my life. But um, yeah, so watch as many as you can. Also reading the books, Chris Anderson's book 
on, on TED Talks. I would recommend Carmine Gallo's book on TED Talks. It was great. So those were the two. There's, there's many out there. Those are my top two recommendations. I love the Carmine Gallo one. Yeah. He's great. I also recommend, he wrote the book, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And both, he does a video where he breaks down the 16 things that Steve Jobs does that makes him an effective presenter. And you can find that on YouTube. I definitely recommend watching that. It's really great. And I love his book, Presentation of Steve Jobs as well. So it's my TEDx. So, oh, here's the thing. I went to the one that I didn't get. And in the course of talking to the organizer, she said, oh, have you met this gentleman? He's going to be doing a TEDx in New York. I met him right there. So all of a sudden, had I not gone, I wouldn't have met him and I probably wouldn't have gotten chosen because hundreds and hundreds of people applied. So he already knew me. He already knew I was one of the finalists. I was introduced by the woman who was running this organizer. So it's about relationship building. It's about doing everything possible to set yourself up for success. So I had been to like four altogether TEDx events. So I finally got chosen. You know, most TEDx talk, TED talks are 18 minutes. I was told it's going to be 12 minutes. Fine. Two weeks before I said, oh, they're only going to be eight minutes. So all of a sudden, not only do I have less, less time, but you know, we work out the timing when we're giving a presentation, yeah. right? So I had a, yeah. a really tight, good 12 minutes and I had to cut four minutes out of it, right? So I did my, designed my eight minutes because it's on visual thinking, the power of visual thinking. I had a lot of slides. I actually scared the organizers with how many slides they have. But we all know if you, do sli if you go through slides really fast, especially if they're builds, you know, 10 slides could be like the equivalent of two because they're all animated, right? Yep. So when people say, you know, you're only allowed one slide. What do people do? They pack 10 <laughs> slides. Well, don't do that. That's one of my least it favorite things. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> do you say, doesn't it drive you crazy when people put a slide number limitation because they oh, think that's, yeah. We've, I think we've done a full episode on exactly that, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, at the end of my NYU class, I asked my students, how many slides do you think you saw over these 14 sessions? And they all guessed like 300, 400. It's 1,500 wow. slides. Yeah. That they saw. But the, most of them are builds. So but if, imagine if in se we, session one of my course, I said, over the next 14 weeks, I'm going to show you 1,500 slides. Can you oh. imagine like, how you would respond to that yeah. if mm -hmm. your professor said that? So anyway, I got my TEDx talk. I had my slides. I rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. Um, when I got there that day, first of all, we had to change venues because we couldn't use the original venue. So the first time I was ever seeing the venue was the, the day I got there, right? We did not have time to do any blocking or run-throughs, walk-throughs. So I literally got up on stage, had my clicker, had, I was strapped in with my microphone. It was, it was being simulcast on Facebook Live. And we had 100 people in the audience, including my wife and two of our best friends. And I clicked the first slide, and it was not the slide I was expecting. What ended up happening, the organizers mixed up the PowerPoint presentations. And instead of putting up my 30-deck slide presentation, they put up the deck that only had the 10 highlight slides that were supposed to be intercut into my video. Oh, my God. So I literally had a to deliver the presentation. First of all, I knew, the, I knew the slides. They were in the right order, thank goodness. But I did not know what was coming next because a lot of them were cut out. So half of my brain was presenting, half my brain was editing in the moment. So it was almost like, I don't know if you know, Petra Kucha, with, or mm -hmm. what I call, sometimes I do an exercise called Vizprovisation, where I put yep. up a slide and you have to tell a story and then the next slide comes up and the next person has to pick up from where you left off. And it's an amazing exercise in visual thinking and impromptu thinking on your feet. So anyway, I left this, the stage almost in tears. I mean, here I was, I had built this up. I was so excited about it. From my point of view, I really messed up. This was going to be a nightmare. My wife was the only one who really knew what happened because she had rehearsed with me. My, our friends didn't. And then when I finally saw the video a few weeks later, I'm like, wow, I'm amazed at how well I did, not tuning my own horn, but 
uh, most people look at watch it and they don't know when they hear the story they're like I don't see it part yeah. of it was because of the preparation and part of it is because I've been on stages for so long but I was so thrown I almost stopped I was almost like a deer in the headlights for a split second one benefit of that I have to admit I talk really fast and I know that in fact I keep a seashell my wife gave me this this is re- supposed to represent a snail shell to remind me to slow down it doesn't work I still talk really fast. <laughs> but but with my TED talk, because I didn't know what slide was coming up next, I paused a lot more. I slowed down a lot more. And I think it actually benefited me. So I'm still working on that. You know, we're all working on things. That's the one thing I'm working on, on the most is slowing down. Here, I'll show you this. You can, the people at home can't see this. Oh, it's like a breathe, that was like, pause. Breathe, pause, don't rush. <laughs> this is my reminder to talk normally and softly, as my wife always reminds me. If it makes you so, feel better, Todd, we've got one here. And in the green, in the corner of our reference, it's uh, smile. smile. I this love it. My, I love all these. This is my webinar one. It says, slow down. It's uh-huh. okay to take the time. Wow. I love it. I love it. <laughs> See, we're all, we're all, that, that's what I want to say to the presenters out there. We are all works in progress. None of us, there's a quote by Mark Twain that said that all great speakers were bad speakers once because none of us were born this way, right? This is all hard work. This yeah. is practice. This is reading the book. This is fine tuning. Even if you do well one time, it doesn't necessarily, you'll do well the next time. It's mm-hmm. preparation and practice. So I think that's the key. Some people make it so easy and natural and seamless and it's not, it takes a lot of work to make it look really natural. And I think the best thing you can do is practice, push yourself outside your comfort zone. As you do, you get better. As you get better, you take more chances. As you take more chances, you continue that cycle of taking more risks, building your confidence and building your skills. So again, I think, you know, some of us say, you know, say, oh, that was so easy. It's never easy. You know, it's every single time. Every semester I get those butterflies, even though I've been teaching for 10 years and I've taught the same course 20 times. That day before, that first day of school jitters is just something that we all have. My wife's an actress and she's, you know, they, her cast members have to force her out onto the stage, literally shove her because uh, and once she's out there, she's brilliant and amazing. But it's that fear between being behind the stage and setting foot on the stage that could feel like a mile, that single step, you know. So those are just some of my key tips for people is, you know, just keep working on it and you'll get better over time. I love what you say that nobody is born a good communicator. Nobody's born with these a talent necessarily. It's the skills that can be taught and learned. Yeah. Although I don't think I would recommend the tactic of not knowing your slides as a tool no. <laughs> to slow down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Improv to talk. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that just evidence of why preparation is so important and potentially being you're planning for the best, but you're expecting the worst. Yeah. Yeah. You never know if the projector's bulb's going to blow right in the middle of your presentation. What if you had to do your presentation without the slides? What if, you know, what if your mic went down? Like there's so many things that could happen. So that's a great point is, uh, you know, prepare for the worst, but, you know, do your best to set yourself up for success. You just reminded me of a story. One of my friends did a presentation and he was so wooden and he was so robotic and he was so forced and phony and artificial. And then he had a brain freeze. And he forgot what he was supposed to say. He forgot his script and it took him a split second. And then what happened? He started telling the rest of the story so naturally, so authentically with heart, with emotion. So it was like the best thing that happened to him was he forgot his script because then he just spoke to us and he told us the same story, but without worrying about every single word. If you skip Mm -hmm. a word, if you skip a line, no one knows unless you're doing Hamlet. It's like to be or... I don't remember line, right? So it's like, unless you're like missing something really important that people know, 
they're not going to know if you skip the line. Just keep moving forward. Tell your story with naturalness, authenticity. Um, and it takes practice to do that, to feel comfortable doing that. But the, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are overly scripted that to the point where every movement, every gesture is robotic. And that drives me crazy. Um, that's the downside of being too over-rehearsed. Yeah. So there's three big things that I've taken out of that whole experience. The first one is that importance of persistence at first. Um, if you don't get the first application that keep trying, keep pitching, maybe change that communication to um, till you get exactly what people are looking for. Yeah. Um, the second one I had was the, like you fall back to the level of your training. Obviously you've had a lot of practice and that was what you were able to fall back on when something yes. went wrong. And then yes. the third one I got was that, and we see this all the time. It's never usually as bad as you think or as, <laughs> yeah, as bad yeah. as you feel. <laughs> Yeah, there's that saying that I got from my, my colleague who was my colleague, then my boss, and he's my teaching partner at NYU and one of my best friends. He, he taught me this. There's three presentations. There's the presentation you plan to give, the presentation you gave, and the presentation you wish you gave, right? Yeah. Those are the three things. I would love to someday deliver my TED Talk as it was supposed to be with the full <laughs> slide deck. And someday yeah. I'll do that. Somewhere I will do that and say, this is how it should have been, and then compare. But you know, the one that's frozen in time is the one that's up on the TED side, and uh, it's fine, and I'm proud of it and happy with it. And I think we're our own worst critics, right? We look at ourselves under a microphone, a mic microphone, microscope. Do not look at ourselves under a microphone unless you happen to be sitting under a microphone but we look at ourselves under a microscope and we're over analytical and we're too critical and we kick ourselves over that one word or that one line we didn't say or we messed up instead of being proud of just getting our message across and people in the audience that they got something from it and took something from it um, my three e's for my company and my mantra is educate engage and excite Educate is what do you want people to know and to learn. Engage is how are you going to capture and hold their attention. And excite is how are you going to inspire and motivate them to do something differently. And we always say, you know, what do you want people to think, feel, know, and ultimately do at the end of your talk or speech? Mm -hmm. What's your call to action, right? What am I going to do? What's the so what, so that after hearing your message? Those are the key and most important things more than if you messed up one or two lines. Um, I think people actually, I think that actually humanizes you in many ways, mm. doesn't it? Being vulnerable and Sir Ken Robinson, and that was far from the most perfect speech in the world, right? And yet, look how powerful that, that talk was. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. All right, Todd, you've mentioned a lot of articles and books. I'm going to bolt you down, though. What is a book or resource that's influenced the way that you speak? That's not your own as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, the original one, I mean, I mean, I could go back to Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, that's necessarily not in presentation skills, but more about intercommuni interpersonal communication. Um, the Naked Presenter, I love by Gar Reynolds. I love Presentation Zen and Slideology, but those were more on slide design. The Naked Presenter is the one book I recommend to everyone, um, my students, my clients. And say, if you read this, this is a great handbook. If you look at this before you go on stage or as you're thinking about what you're going to do, that to me would be the one book that really had the most impact. So there's a lot of things that, had, that impacted me in different ways. That's like, if I had to put it all into one, that would be the one. Excellent. And of course, Todd Churches, if people like what you're saying, where can people find you? Well, whether you like what I'm saying or not, you can still find me in the same places. So, uh, so my new website just launched toddchurches.com. 
So just go to toddchurches.com. My company's called Big Blue Gumball. I still have the company website, but toddchurches.com is more about my speaking and my TED Talk and my book. So go to toddchurches.com slash subscribe. Subscribe to my newsletter. And if you do, you could download my list of top 52 visual leadership book recommendations. So a lot of the people asked for that. So I made that the free giveaway. Secondly, I live on LinkedIn. So just link in with me. I'm there all the time. I like comments and share posts. And thirdly, just go to anywhere books are sold like Amazon and uh, check out visual leadership. Excellent. So you have 52 books in the list and I asked you for one. That's how, <laughs> that's how we roll. Yes. Look, thank you so much, Todd Churches, for being on the show. There's been a great conversation again, and I, I'm sure people have gotten a bit of value out of today's episode. So mm. thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Thank Kate. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. So um, can you tell us, we talked about the four pillars. Oops, yeah. I just punched the table. Yeah. So uh, you talked, um, I'm going to start this again because now my hand hurts. And that's all I'm thinking about. Another podcast related injury that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.